0: alex mozette and welcome to winner take all where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies we got a really great set of topics today i'm going to do a quick recap of what they are we're going to start off with a little why has doordash beaten new breeds you can go google it you can go see all these articles that doordash stock surpassed uber stock for a few days but then you want to understand why and all the articles just tell you a recap of what you know already happened. So we're going to talk about why. Amazon has gotten caught red-handed on cheating and lying and doing all the things that they said they don't do in India. And we're going to dig into that and more. Microsoft is decoupling from China, which is music to my ears. And we've got a great Interview that Ninja did, the big live, you know, video game live streamer, uh, talking about what went wrong with his involvement with Mixer, uh, Microsoft's Twitch competitor, live streaming video competitor. Some really interesting takeaways there around the molasses that Famga is walking through when they try to go and and build their own new businesses from scratch. As a reminder, if you want to get all the best updates from Winner Take All and. Uh, our battle to fight back against big tech, you can text us and subscribe. We'll also give you some swag along the way too. The number is 203-646-5159. We'll send you some swag. So, on to the first topic. Why is DoorDash, or why did DoorDash for a brief period of time surpass Uber's market cap? There's a lot of conjecture out there. We've actually talked about in the past on the show um, why DoorDash has been so successful. It's not new news The DoorDash has more market share than Uber Eats. We, we covered that when we did a du- deep dive, um, on DoorDash leading up to, leading up to their IPO. If we look at where their stocks are at and have closed today, Uber's got a market cap of about $88 billion. At close today, and DoorDash is 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 now down at seventy two billion dollars. So, but there was a few day overlap there where Uber was tanking and DoorDash was spiking. Some tweets from Emil Michael, who has been cataloging this. He was the former chief business officer at Uber. Was you know, and and probably still is very close to Travis Kalanick. You know, really one of the one of the marquee co-founders and obviously was the 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 ceo for the majority of uber's tenure he actually initially joined it um as kind of an early investor then became co-founder put in a bunch of money then kind of took over as ceo if we go in the way 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 back time machine emil michael has not let go of the fact that you know the board With, you know, heavy involvement from some of Uber's closest and longest VC investors, Benchmark really being, and Bill Gurley really being, you know, one of the biggest advocates for Uber over the years, and then was one of the biggest proponents of ejecting Travis and some of the close top tier executives like Emil Michael out of Uber. So Emil is clearly tracking, hey, since I have not been involved in this company, how has it been going? Here is a, t- a recent tweet from Emil. He says, never would we have ever thought this nightmare possible. Uber Eats was 3x the size of Dash in 2018. Since then, Dash has inverted this market share and is worth more than all of Uber, including Eats and Rides. Globally, the Yahooification of Uber is sad to watch. Choice words from Mr. Michael. A little bit of bias, but also a little bit of truth, right? He's kind of saying, hey, what's going on? Um, how would you let something like this happen, Dara and team? I've been very positive on Uber's platform conglomerate status, right? On them having both rides and eats on them um choosing to really just be number one or number two in a given market and to exit uh, if they weren't in that number one and number two position? or if they're in a number three, how can they kind of consolidate with the number two, for example, or, or you know, use m and A as a vehicle to accelerate ultimately their ability to get to profitability, but to kind of recognize here the markets we're strongest in, and let's focus on those and and defocus from the ones where we have an uphill battle to climb. Emil has a few tweets which I'm going to talk about, which give his explanation uh, for why you've seen the Yahooification of Uber. but let's let's look at a few other points of view, and I'll give my overview, obviously and then we'll get to a meal and close it out. So a couple other stats for, as we jump into this. You got the Financial Times here covering this. Uber on course to post first profitable quarter. Yay, mm-hmm. investors love to hear that. Here's this, this famed now chart, DoorDash in the pink, Uber, uh, Uber stock in the blue. And so what are the actual market, market uh, share stats of meal delivery in the US? DoorDash according to second measure has 57% of the U S meal delivery market and Uber eats 26%. Wow. Less than half of DoorDash. So let's go, let's go to the tape. Let's go to second measure. Here is second measures monthly sales analysis. Bloomberg just acquired this company somewhat recently. Second measure, really looking at kind of credit card transaction data to narrow in where the money is flowing. You can see here this massive spike being attributed to COVID in uh, in obviously, you know, March of 2020 from 2018 numbers to pre-COVID hitting the total size of meal delivery two and a half X. That's what this chart is showing us Um, to a peak now of really end of 2020 was then over 6x, right? So from the period of from 2018 to early 2020, you had about a 2.5x increase in the overall size of the market. And then that went from 2.5x to over 6x, right? So a massive, massive, massive increase uh, because of COVID and people not going out and wanting food delivered to their home. Uh, so... In that period of time, Emil's claim is that back in 2018, if you're looking at the chart, DoorDash is in orange, Uber Eats is in red. Uh, what did his tweet say? That they had three x the size of Dash in 2018. So if I'm looking at this chart, and I look at the red and I look at the orange, it doesn't really look like three x, right? If anything, Grubhub looks 3x either Uber Eats or DoorDash. DoorDash and Uber Eats actually look somewhat even uh, back in 2018. So let's just say that they are even. And if Emile's point is that you know Uber should have beat DoorDash, how did how did DoorDash beat Uber Eats? He thinks that Uber Eats was in a much larger point of dominance. He was there. Maybe he has some better data than second measure. I don't know. Maybe he's referencing global sales of Uber Eats. That would make more sense. Whereas this is obviously looking at U.S. sales. So globally, uh, Uber Eats absolutely, you know, is in a number of countries, and so that would make more sense. But in the U.S., I would actually say it's not three X. Let's just say it's an even start. But still, how did how did DoorDash pull this off? We're going to answer that question. The second thing is that. Uber Eats does have a huge global presence. You know, the reporting is also a little bit off, right? The Financial Times is saying, well, Uber Eats has just 26%. Okay, that's 26% of the US market. But the total Uber Eats GMV relative to, to the total DoorDash GMV, DoorDash is really just in North America, Uber Eats is in multiple countries, is also a much smaller gap. You go and you read a bunch of articles, you Google this, you will find what I found, which is actually really nothing of interest. You you Google, why is DoorDash uh, bigger than Uber Eats? Quartz is up there. DoorDash is overtaking Uber Eats and US online food delivery. They basically just tell you what the companies do. They show you the same charts. Then I saw this article, how DoorDash became the most successful food delivery service in the US. I'm like, oh, maybe I, maybe I found a good piece on this. Nope. Pretty much the same thing. I mean, you read this and it's just gibberish. It's just a bunch of junk out there. So um, what we've talked about before on the show is that DoorDash strategically expanded aggressively to the uh, suburban environments, right? You know, if you think about uh, food delivery, meal delivery, marketplaces in the earlier days, they were really concentrated where In urban environments where you had high density of restaurants and consumers, right? You could route deliveries uh, quickly because they're all close to each other. You had a lot of demand. You had a lot of supply, a lot of fragmentation, right? Kind of all the recipe that you would want for scaling any kind of marketplace business, right? Then kind of curious then what DoorDash really did, which was very impressive, was that they went and expanded aggressively to the suburbs. And if you look at this chart, so 2017 DoorDash revenue was $110 million. Boom, 2018, $550 million, right? 5X, one year. Then 2019, $850 million. And then 2020, $2.9 billion, right? How, do, how did they make those leaps and gains? And the thing that I really zero in on is this number, the number of restaurants. So You look at this, right? From 2017, 59,000 to 2018, 100,000 to 2019, 258,000. And then, yeah, from 2019, 258 to 2021, 390, right? This big leap here from 2017 to 2019, they basically 5X the number of restaurants. And the way I think you do that, it takes years of work preceding the big leap, right, for the big leap to happen so the things that were in the making to me goes back to this aspect of them saying you know yeah we can we could fight in urban or we could really focus aggressively on on focusing on the suburban markets you know the uh your 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 sub 10 top 10 markets right okay yeah i got Uber Eats, and I got Grubhub, and Postmates, and Caviar, right? And probably a couple others that I'm forgetting, all competing aggressively in urban. What about all the markets that aren't in the top 10 cities? What about all the suburban markets? That's where DoorDash really aggressively focused. That, to me, was something they're working on for years, leading up to these massive market share leaps that you start to see 2018 going into 2019. was a huge year for them that's my theory on it there's obviously other things that they did just with product innovation and this and that but to me the big aha the big leap right which then you can once you hit that critical mass now you're out in front right here's the critical year 2019 they had parity right 2019 they leaped this was the big leap year was 2019 and then doordash just continued and then what doordash said is okay now We've surrounded them. It's kind of like what Facebook did. If there is a competitive social network at, say, one school, what Facebook would do is they wouldn't go directly into that school. What they would do is they would find all the schools neighboring that school, go spread to those schools where the competitor wasn't already in those schools. Facebook would go into the neighboring adjacent schools, get all those social networks humming, and then they would go and attack the school uh, that uh, that their competitor had had beat them to, right? It's kind of, I think it might've even been talked about in the Facebook movie, um, this kind of surround and then attack strategy, right? DoorDash going into the suburbs, getting traction, getting volume, raising capital, building uh, demand and audience and uh, network on both supply and, and demand. And then saying, okay, now we're ready to go take the fight into the urban environment, take the fight to Uber Eats and the caviars and the Postmates and the Grubhubs of the world and go aggressively into urban. And that's what they've done more so in the past couple of years, right? So that's my take on it. Let's see what um, Emil's take on it is. Fourth annual reminder of Uber missing this goal. Sadly, Uber is worth about the same as Lyft and Dash combined. This is in early August, even though they both serve just the US and Canada and Uber is global. He's replying to a tweet from Benchmark in 2017, uh, two years prior, August 2017, where long on Uber, Benchmark's comparative valuation analysis shows Uber could comfortably be worth over $100 billion in just two years. You saw the stock price. Uber is still at not 100, it's still sub $100 billion valuation for plus years later. Emil goes. The main explanations I have are a, a massive value destruction caused by current management losing Uber Eats' dramatic lead over DoorDash that was left to them in 2018. He says it's 3x. Other data shows it's maybe you know maybe 1x. Um, in just the US, it's bigger globally. Uh, also, Uber Eats retreat from India and the Middle East. So there you go. Shrinking the global volumes. You know, I guess he's just saying this was mismanagement on behalf of current management. For example, missing the strategic misstep that DoorDash went suburban and Uber Eats missed that, right? They didn't react. They should have taken it and and been toe to toe with DoorDash in those markets. It would have been much more difficult for DoorDash to get to scale in those markets if Uber Eats was competing at the same veracity uh, on a rural and kind of more suburban. Uh plain. Second point, huge brain drain of some of the best talent Silicon Valley. I guess there's an exodus out of Uber. Yeah. Some of that was deliberate. Uh poor policy, PR marketing performance, countless loss, regulatory battles, spending gobs of money on TV ads, loss of confidence by investors that management is a winning strategy versus just a PR strategy. Current management is entering the fifth year of a five-year contract with a share price that is lower than it was in 2015. And the IPO. Number of shots that he takes, but I think the first point is the one that I'm really talking about most, which is massive value destruction caused by current management losing Uber Eats dramatic lead over DoorDash that was left to them in 2018. He says it's massive. I says it, it's strong. But the point is this: Uber Eats messed up. They did mess up. They let DoorDash grow in markets unabated. And we're not really. Uh, pushing as aggressively, and probably some of that mix up, and um, you know, missing that was from the management shakeup, right? So, if we look at Emil's profile, Emil was their chief business officer, September 2013 through June 2017. In August 2017, Dara joined as CEO of Uber. So. All of this was starting the suburban move. This is all when this stuff was happening was in 2017 was when DoorDash was going to rural, was going to suburbia. They didn't start doing this in 2018. 59,000 restaurants 2017, 100,000 restaurants 2018. Right? You don't just snap your fingers and say oh well you know in in a year we're just going to add uh you know go from 100 to 258 these these are things you need people you need systems you need tech you need process right this there's a lot of work that goes into onboarding this number of restaurants at that level of scale in that such fast period of time it's crazy they were going into suburbia in 2017 daro was coming in daro was figuring out what the hell to do hiring people bringing on management exiting other markets And they missed it. They missed it. That's on Dara. That's also a direct byproduct of absolutely ejecting Travis and his team out of Uber. The data is there. This is when this stuff was happening. 2017. This was the strategic stuff that was going into place and DoorDash was executing and they didn't have to deal with the CEO and all the executive team uh, being ejected, and then the whole team's turning over, and people figure, what should I do? Focus on right, like chaos. Now, the sad thing is that they haven't really been able to recover from it. They've kind of just maintained. And I think that also speaks to uh, what, how well the or or well or really lack thereof, Uber leadership has been able to react to Doordash kicking their butt. All right, okay, next topic. Amazon caught red-handed. So this really great uh, deep dive in Reuters. Amazon copied products and rigged search results to promote its own brands document show. Uh, Reuters has now reviewed these documents. A trove of of internal Amazon documents reveals how the e-commerce giant ran a systemic campaign of creating knockoff goods and manipulating search results to boost its own product lines in India Practices has denied engaging in, and at least two top Amazon executives reviewed the strategy. Hmm. Sound familiar? Where else have we heard that happening? Oh, yeah, that's right. In the United States. Here's a video we did um, a year and a half ago, April 2020. Talking about this exact thing. Here's here's the intro. Here's just the intro snippet. Some executives had access to data containing proprietary information that they used to research best-selling items. If you've been listening to the show, we've literally been talking about this for months. Of course, they're using this information. The problem is that no one is able to regulate this or enforce this. Of course, Amazon's using this information. Now, here's the interesting thing. My last point there in that highlight of that, of that clip was that No one's able to enforce or regulate this right now here's the interesting thing in india they've passed regulation to prevent this exact thing from happening and we've talked about this on the show a number of times india has regulation in place that says if you're a foreign-owned foreign-controlled marketplace you cannot sell you cannot do 1p and 3p you got to do one or the other right you can either be an e-commerce company that sells 1P products where you buy the product, you hold them on balance sheet, and then you resell them. 1P. Or you have third-party sellers and the inventory is not owned or controlled by you, it's sold by third-party sellers. Marketplace, right? And, and, and literally, this is law in India. Um, this is a, actually a great law. I've been very pro this, even though, yes, it's a form of protectionism, tech protectionism, which China's done to the nth degree. For their own benefit at our expense india has passed this law which was a great law so how how is this a problem right how 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 does this problem even happen if amazon isn't supposed to be able to sell its own one-piece stuff if it's got third-party sellers that's the that's the craziest maddening part of this whole thing and I'll go through and I'll take you through and show you, yes, all the things that Amazon did, uh, which is documented. And they've got the goods on them uh, to show that, you know, they, they, I mean, they're just cheaters, um, you know, and you could say they're criminals. And so but let's start with that. How did they what loophole did they do to even sell first party products? And here is the crazy thing. You got to scroll way down in this report, but they do touch on it. Credit to Reuters to kind of really recognize that. In early 2016, Amazon private brand employees were internally noting the success of Accenture, a clothing brand they had launched on Amazon.in, that's Amazon in India, in partnership with a seller. The seller owned the brand, Amazon designed the products. These are... Amazon branded, Amazon designed products. Amazon is using all the data from other third-party sellers on the platform, all documented in this thing. And then they're saying, hey, seller, you own the brand, wink, wink. Uh, You own the brand. Uh, And then what this document shows is that they then favor the brand, which is technically sold by a third-party seller, (laughs) but it's an Amazon product. Designed and created by Amazon, they design they they get the manufacturer. Then they just they're basically pawning out like just a puppet, just a facade of a seller to then act as the third party seller to get past the regulation. But you know, in the economics of it all, Amazon is getting their slug of this, um, and and we know that because the actual documents here um, have revenue projections from selling their own first party products. The 2016 document stated a goal, offer Amazon's own goods in 20 to 40% of all product categories on Amazon India within 2 years. Amazon would achieve profitability in its private brand business private brand business by only launching products that will provide more margin than comparable reference brand products. Amazon predicted private brand sales would reach nearly $600 million by 2020 in India. Riddle me this. How does Amazon have $600 million in private brand sales if the third-party sellers are actually third-party sellers? Oh, that's right. Because Amazon's cheating. I mean, it's it's insane. I mean, that's really what ratchets this up to the next level. This article goes on to talk about how um, you know, which Amazon executives uh, actually reviewed all these documents? This guy right here is one of them, Russell Grandinetti, the head of Amazon International Consumer Business, globally. That's the guy. He knew about this. He reviewed the documents. Of course he knew about this. And then the the uh, reporting goes into detail on how the you know employees at Amazon would go and research the measurement sizes of the you know, they would go create a t-shirt line called Accenture, and then they saw that Accenture had a lot of returns. And then they would say, Oh, well, what other t-shirt line has has less returns than Accenture? And they already they already ripped off one t-shirt company to create the V1 of Accenture t-shirt model, right? And then they said, oh, well, this one has more returns than we would like. So what's another t-shirt model that we could, you know, we could modify this this line of the t-shirt. And then they they ripped off a second t-shirt line, right? They said, oh, this one's performing really well, doesn't have the kind of returns that the first t-shirt we ripped off has. So let's rip off the second t-shirt and now make that our next version of Accenture. Literally what they did. Um, and they have all the data. They know which one's performing, how it's performing, where it's performing better, which one's performing better in this situation, which one's performing better in that situation. And then they just take the measurements. They ship the samples to the manufacturer and they say, here you go, make this. Oh, and we're Amazon. So we're going to order a bunch of this. We can commit to crazy high volumes and you're going to give us the best pricing that you're going to give to anyone. And... Then they get their margins. They, they don't have to pay for the search results. They know they're going to be in the top search results. The company used a technique called search seeding to boost the rankings of Amazon Basics and Salimo brand goods. That was their like Brazilian code name for their Amazon Basics in India. Um, according to the 2016 brand, re- referring to Amazon product codes, the report stated, we use search seeding for newly launched products to ensure that they feature in the first two or three Product search results. So they rig the search results. They take all the data from their sellers. They send it to the manufacturer. They then cause a loophole to sell it through a fake third-party seller to get around the Indian legislature. And all the top brass in Amazon knows this. Big business. Hundreds of millions of dollars. Probably now billions of dollars today. Crazy. So now what's happening? Okay. Okay. It's clear. They lied. They're liars. They cheated. Okay. Uh, so now what's happening? You get now uh, some senators in the United States saying U.S. bill would stop big tech from favoring its own products. Hmm. This just came out. Like this article came out from Reuters. Now the senators are all up in arms. Oh, we got to put this. We got to put this bill into place. Uh, like no one knew. Like well, Oh, would have been nice if. Um, If back in here it is in June of 2021, remember when the House Judiciary Committee passed these bills, uh, bipartisan bills, we covered them on the show at length. I Actually, live stream commented on the House Judiciary proceeding when they were going over these bills. Five bills and one of them is focused. Actually, two of them are focused on doing this exact thing to stop uh, platforms and marketplaces from favoring their own products vertical integration this is what microsoft got in trouble for in the 90s it's the easiest thing to catch them on and and that's why you know what we say on the show all the time is that platforms um if you try and say the platform disadvantages the consumer you're going down on a wild goose chase what you need to understand is that platforms take advantage of producers in this case third-party sellers in apple's case spotify and app developers google's case what Third-party websites. Microsoft already got in trouble for this in the 90s. And so they've also ste- steered clear of this. But um, Google, Amazon, and, um, and Apple are all doing this, vertically integrating to grab more margin and penalize producers. And producers are customers. And in this House Judiciary report that they did on antitrust situations in the United States they actually got an internal memo from amazon and in amazon memo it says our sellers our producers are very important to us they are customers we treat them like customers producers are customers just like consumers are customers platforms have two customer groups that is the way to thread the needle to show that platforms are truly these 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 large tech monopolies are actually monopolies and they are taking advantage of customers which are producers. How much more evidence do you want? So, now, these bills, we haven't heard anything about these bills, but now the senators, oh, let me introduce my own bill. The bills already exist. You just can't believe anything these politicians do, right? They just want to be in the news. They don't actually do anything. Uh, The whole system is corrupt. I digress. Then you had five U.S. lawmakers accuse Amazon of possibly lying to Congress following the Reuters report. Can you get a backbone? Doesn't everyone understand that everyone lies to Congress? Like literally everyone that testifies to Congress is lying to Congress. Like everyone does it. Can't anyone have any sort of follow through to actually say you're lying? Not, not. Okay. Okay. Here's what they did. Here's what they did. At best, this reporting confirms Amazon's representatives misled the committee. At worst, it demonstrates that they may have lied to Congress in possible violation of federal criminal law. They may have lied in possible violation. Could you hedge it any better? The best case scenario should be that Amazon lied. The worst case scenario should be that they have deliberately uh, defied and cheated the Indian law now if they get caught for it or not if you know this is criminal proceedings all this stuff it's all going to ensue but these letters are a joke our congress is a joke um and and what you'll see is even if a law is passed by congress you go through the years and years and trials and tribulations it would take for congress to pass a law to try and do anything against amazon they would just pull some kind of shenanigans like this and just actively subvert it and then let you try and actually hold them accountable to it which now we'll see what happens in india india actually has been much more progressive as we've reported on the show and taken much more action proactively to try and limit the abuse by large tech monopolies particularly foreign ones uh, in the dom- domestic market so i am actually much more bullish on india holding a- amazon accountable than our u.s politicians now um, in other news, Microsoft. We got a couple things on Microsoft. So, Microsoft, Microsoft uh, is pulling out from pulling LinkedIn from the Chinese market. The as we've talked about, China's been on a tear uh, against their own Chinese big tech monopolies and big tech companies. Uh, let alone certainly foreign large tech US tech companies operating in China if that you know it's kind of an oxymoron. Surprisingly, LinkedIn was available in China. I didn't even realize that until until this news came out. Basically, a couple of weeks ago, Microsoft came under heavy scrutiny for its decision to block the profiles of certain US journalists in China. So Microsoft messed this one up, right? China said, block these US journalists and they did it. Remember when when Zoom magically, uh, like, uh, just banned these webinar events that were being hosted by Chinese nationals who had left China and were, you know, were were rallying people to kind of go against the CCP, valiant effort, we support you. And then those webinars just magically disappeared off of Zoom, and their accounts were all blocked. Yeah, yeah, similar kind of thing happening here. LinkedIn blocks U.S. journalist profiles in China, citing prohibited content. LinkedIn is one of the only large American social media platforms to agree to the Chinese government's demands to censor content and is tasking its own employees with restricting what users in China can see. Microsoft capitulated, then they did an about face and they said, whoa, okay, this is blowing up. Um, let's just shut LinkedIn down. And that's, <laughs> that's what they did. The software giant could choose to either bow to the demands of the Chinese government to limit access of individual profiles that found unacceptable ridiculous, or a walk. It chose the latter. But but actually, at first it chose the former, and then it got a bunch of blowback, and then it chose the latter. Okay. But hey, at least they ended up making the right decision. It just took them a couple weeks and some really bad press for them to get there. But they ended up making the appropriate decision, which is, screw you, China, I'm out of here. And that is... at the beginning, we're probably like mid-cycle of the great decoupling. We are decoupling from China. You can't deal with them. You can't trust them. You must decouple. You better write off your investments in China and just hightail it out of there as quick and as fast with as much, you know, minimize the blowback as you can and salvage whatever you can. But it's sayonara time, baby. LinkedIn wrote this whole blog post. You know, we wanted to support freedom of expression, freedom of expression and communism. Water, oil, oil, water. Do they go together, science class? No, they do not. They will never go together. I don't, you're going to have to change the fundamental laws of physics and chemistry and they will potentially then go together, but you'll have torn apart the entire universe in the process. They don't go together. Communism, freedom of expression, do not mix. So LinkedIn now just kind of just figured this one out. And now they've said that we're facing a significantly more challenging operating environment and greater compliance requirements in China. And so we are going to sunset the current localized version of LinkedIn. And you know what? Microsoft shares are up. I mean, LinkedIn's a very small part of Microsoft's business, so they're not directly correlated. But hey, now instead, they're going to go launch some kind of jobs platform. Uh, you know, so no social media, just purely job matchmaking. And there was a Chinese recruiting firm called like 58.58.com was in plat our ETF with Wisdom Tree, um, which puts all the public platform stocks in an index. But we've limited the Chinese exposure of that index, thankfully. Um, and 58.com was pulling all kinds of funny games with their numbers, like COVID hit and then their numbers went through the roof. I mean, how does that make any sense? Because COVID hit China earlier than the United States. Because COVID from China. All their numbers were out of whack. I I did not trust what I was seeing out of 58.com and their reportings. It just looked too good to be true with COVID hitting and People like, I don't know. It just didn't make any sense to me. So now LinkedIn jobs is is basically going to be a recruiting, you know, job marketplace. Um, fine. But good on LinkedIn for ultimately exiting, decoupling. Don't focus your time there and enable the authoritarian regime that is the CCP. So good for them. Now, a not so good topic for them is Mixer. Mixer took Ninja. It's what we call a single marquee strategy you take really popular either users on the consumer or producer side in this case on the producer side right so you are the platform you take really popular producer and that's going to help you get what consumers on the other side of the platform they signed a big deal with ninja and all their live streamers took them off of twitch twitch was super pissed about it famously ninja left mixer shut down and everyone was like whoa what happened with this so Ninja just did an interview talking about what happened. And it's really interesting. So we're going to listen to a few minutes of it. Paid a ton of money. You go over there and do the best job that you can to bring over the Ninja community. It just doesn't gain any traction. Microsoft pulls out a mixer. Yep. And we're in this period where you got to decide what's next. Yeah. Like, what was the thought process for you? Were you ready and geared up? Like, Twitch was the only option. Were you considering YouTube? Were you considering Facebook? Like, what was the biggest priority
1: for you? Really good question, man. Um, and I can tell you that we had it months of well, like a, like a month and a half of legitimate debate. It was not uh, a landslide victory by any means. I think I had a phone call with Jack a couple times. Oh. Uh, called, called Jordan Fisher. Um, and got his, he was actually that one of the ultimate deciders, um, and just kind of like envisioning where I would end up. But it was, it was like a, a little bit of a lifestyle, uh, deal pretty much. Right. Like, did I want to, you know, get right back into a, you know, a hard grind of streaming, which is kind of what I thought I wanted to, or, you know, maybe take a little bit more time off and not have too many requirements for streaming, which would have been the YouTube side of things and do more lifestyle. Uh, which is actually, you know, kind of where we're at right now. Kind of like, it's kind of hard to hit, you know, the streaming hours lately, just because Dude, it's kind of like a lull in the games right now, man. You know what I mean? Like, it's tough. It's very tough. It's very tough. And you know, we really believed in Mixer too. Like, yeah. actually, I want you to like. I want everyone. I want all my fans, and everyone everyone to know, like, dude, the amount of like faith that we actually had in the platform. Didn't think that Microsoft was going to be that big of a, like. There, there was just this wall, bro, where we would talk to Mixer and we we're like, hey, like, this is what really is preventing people from coming onto the platform. And then they were like, okay, we had to go to Microsoft, so it'll be like a year.
0: This is exactly what. My article, which I published with Wisdom Tree a couple of weeks ago, talking about, you know, FAMGA, uh, including Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Apple, large tech monopolies, having used m as a mechanism to accelerate growth over the past 10 years. And so this is a perfect example, right? Large, whether it's a large tech monopoly or any large business, right? Building a new business from scratch is very difficult to do. Um... When you're building a new business from scratch inside of a large conglomerate, which is Microsoft, you know, you hear this from Ninja, right? He's saying, hey, we're giving them feedback, change this, tweak that. And he gives some examples in a few minutes, which we're going to get to in a second to really crystallize this. But that sluggishness, that molasses, right? You're just trying to, every step you take is just so much uphill, just You know, you're just fighting so many battles to make what should be a simple, quick fix, right? Like, we got to move. Let's make decisions. Let's make tweaks, right? Let's go. And then you're just stuck and it just wears you down. That happens in large companies. That is why you hear all about the need to have autonomy, the need to have independent decision-making, to have a budget, to have your own culture, right? To really separate from the molasses that comes from... The large conglomerate, and and so you know, I would attribute this failure to Microsoft's inability, ultimately, than Xbox's inability to give enough operating operational autonomy to Mixer to make its own decisions and build its own business as it saw fit. Let's listen for more.
1: And when you made this move to Mixer, there was a lot uh, of things that Mixer had. That people on Twitch or from other websites like, damn, that's crazy! Like yeah. how low their low latency mode was. I mean, it was instant. Yeah. It was also so clear. The the fidelity was so no high cap on the platform. Event. Hype zone. Come the hype on. zone where it would I show I didn't know at that the, of the battle royale games was dope. Amazing. The stream interactions that were possible. Amazing, dude. Yeah, no, they they had so dude they had so much potential. And it was a little. It was the little things. It was retaining people. Like one thing, like their uh to make a username, Microsoft email account only. Are you serious? Like. Uh, and then you had to like, and then they gave you a username just like they do with your Xbox live account. And it was like, well, that's annoying. Now you got to go into the profile section completely off of what the stream is. And then you got to like change your username. If you want to be like, you know, authentic and not whatever, you know, uh super square sixty nine yeah. seven two, like, you know, what are okay, that name rules? But yeah. other, <laughs> other than that, actually my old game yeah. was crazy. Uh, you know, it was, it just did so many barriers. There you go.
0: I mean, it's pretty funny. These guys are making fun of Microsoft for being a, old sluggish company can't innovate can't make changes can't optimize a user sign up uh user registration workflow i'm sure if we talk to the microsoft people they'll have their own side of the story but the proof is in the pudding they shut mixer down ninjas back on the other competitive uh you know live streaming platforms youtube is making a big push youtube just did did something similar signed up a lot of talent uh, made them, you know, single marquee strategy, made them exclusive to YouTube gaming. This script has been played before. We've seen Spotify do the script with Joe Rogan and others. But, you know, Spotify already had a well-oiled machine and product to then plug Joe Rogan into, whereas Mixer was was much more nascent. But the great thing about it was, you know, this panel here was like, we really like the product. We really like the tech of Mixer. We actually think the product capability of the, of the technology arguably could have been better than Twitch's. But it, it was actually the mismanagement, back to the central theme of today's episode, the mismanagement of these executives to be able to move nimbly, react, and innovate. Kind of ironic that you know now some cases out of Uber and now Microsoft's Mixer um, to just kind of do what you're supposed to do, which is build product, iterate, right? Take take leaps, fail fast, all that mantra. Man, struggling with it. And that's a management problem. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. I will talk to you soon. Thanks for joining.